0: And Lord, as we prepare our own hearts now to come to Your Word, once again we come as beggars and we ask that You would feed us our daily bread. Feed us our daily portion, O Lord, from Your Word. Again, You know what we need. You know where we are. You know who we are. You know what our needs are. You know where we need to be rebuked, where we need to be encouraged. And we remember that Your Word is is sufficient for all of these things. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would give us uh, illumination, would give us understanding, that we may keep Your Word in our hearts and that we would be not only hearers but doers for the glory of Christ our Savior. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We'll be finishing our study of 1 Samuel chapter 17 today. Uh, it might have seemed more natural to have ended chapter 17 with our previous sermon in which we saw uh, the battle of David and Goliath. But uh, as you'll see today, there's actually a contrast that we'll uh, be looking at that uh, happens in the the last few verses of chapter 17 and the first few verses of chapter 18. So today we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 17 verses 55 to chapter 18 verse 5 as we continue in our study of 1 Samuel. Now you might have noticed uh, that as we were just praying, and I'm sure that you've all noticed, or at least most of you have, that every week as we pray before the sermon, uh, that I pray for another church in our area. Uh, Specifically, I, I try to pray for one specifically near to us. Uh, specifically in our own area, and sometimes it's just kind of a general prayer, uh, especially if I haven't, you know, heard from that pastor in a while, if, we, if he and I haven't touched base in some time, uh, and I assume that things are going well. I'll just pray something general, like you know, I pray that God will bless them and and keep them. Uh, but sometimes, especially if I've been, you know, more in touch with that pastor, uh, sometimes it's more specific than that. If I know the pastor has been encountering some type of trial in his ministry, some type of difficulty going on in the church, you know, I might lay out a few details, but I try to pray for a church in our area, not just us, but another church in our area every single week. Now, if you think about that from the world's perspective for just a moment, that's going to seem like a very, very strange thing from, again, from the world's perspective. That is a very strange thing, if if you think about it, I think it's very unlikely that uh, you would find business owners who are in the same, uh, you know, same general uh, market, uh, trying to reach the same people, uh, praying for one another, hoping that the other will have uh, greater success than they have. Uh, But when it comes to churches, here's the difference. We're not competing with one another. We're not competing with other churches. Christians aren't competing with other Christians. That's not the way it works in God's economy. And the reason for that is simply this. We are simply to be faithful to the Lord. But we recognize that God is sovereign over all things, including the results of our ministry. And so we focus on what we can do, we focus on being faithful and we trust that God is responsible for the results of our ministry. We're not responsible for the results of our ministry. God is the one who takes care of that and He alone takes care of that. And for that reason, uh, the, the pastor, just like any other Christian, can rejoice in the blessings that God is pouring out through other ministries. In fact, the pastor and every Christian should rejoice in the blessings that God is pouring out through other ministries because we're not competing with one another whenever we learn that the Lord is at work whether it's in another church or just in another Christian's life the fact is we both can and we should be joyful we can rejoice when God is working in our midst and with that much established it's really interesting to read some of the responses that people had to the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Some people rejoiced at his ministry. Uh, If you think about the the lepers who were healed, the ten lepers who were healed and went away rejoicing, only one of them came back uh, to worship Jesus and and to thank Jesus. But we also read of people like the, the Pharisees and the scribes, who never uh, rejoiced over jesus 's ministry in fact the the thought of uh, of rejoicing over jesus' ministry um, never seems to have crossed their mind. The, the thought of rejoicing at the work that God was doing in jesus ministry. Uh, it never happened. They never even thought about that because they hated Jesus' ministry. And that was at least partially, uh, if not entirely for many of them, because they saw Jesus as a threat to their position. And so they saw Him kind of as competition. The people were flocking to Him and going to Him for spiritual advice, not to them. They were, the people were recognizing that Jesus was speaking as they had never heard their teachers speak before. And so they were going to Him, which caused them to feel like, this guy's not a co-laborer, he is the competition. Now there's one very interesting story uh, of Jesus healing a man, miraculously healing a man, only for the people in that region, in that community. To be absolutely outraged. In Mark chapter 5, we read of Jesus taking the disciples across the Sea of Galilee into the region of the Gadarenes, and while there, they come upon a man who was possessed by many demons. Uh, He called himself Legion to reflect the fact that many demons. Possessed him. And we're told uh, in verses 3 and 4 of Mark chapter 5 and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Now, if you've got a person like that in your community, you're not going to be real happy about that. But the fact that he was severely afflicted by the demons is revealed, as we're told in the next verse, verse 5, that constantly. This sounds like somebody who would really be disrupting your region, really disrupting your whole neighborhood repeatedly. But to cut to the chase here, Jesus heals this man, uh, setting him free from the possession and, and the affliction of this legion of demons. And based on everything that we've been told about this man and what he had been doing for who knows how long, you would think that the people in that region would say, oh, thanks be to God that this man has been set free but instead they get angry with Jesus and the reason that they were angry is because Jesus had cast these demons the legion of demons into their herds of pigs and so the people of the region demanded that the Lord Jesus leave the region immediately And what we learn from that story is that the reason that these people did not rejoice is because they valued their own things, in this case, pigs. They valued their own things more than they valued the soul of this man. You see, selfish ambition prevented them not only from loving their neighbor the way that they've been instructed to love their neighbor, but it also prevented them from rejoicing in the work of the Lord in their midst. And the fact is, selfishness will do that. So today, we're going to be continuing our study of 1 Samuel, looking at chapter 17, verse 55, to chapter 18, verse 5. We're at the point in this book, in this text, where David has just defeated the giant, Goliath of Gath on the battlefield. And while, on one hand, we can say that it was it was David who did it. It was a work of David. We know that ultimately it was God who delivered David uh, from his enemy, delivered David's enemy into David's hands. And uh, that was David's confident hope. And we should see it the same way that David did, that ultimately it wasn't David. It was the Lord working through David. But in the verses that follow, that we come to today, we see two very different reactions to the work that God had done through David in their midst. We'll see that Saul's reaction was very strange, to be honest. It was cold. It was to rejoice. So the point of the passage that we come to today is that when we've been truly set free from worldly thinking and from Selfish ambitions and selfish concerns, we're free to truly love our brothers and sisters in Christ and to rejoice over the work that God is accomplishing in and through them. David's victory over Goliath. Uh, would have, you can just imagine, it would have just catapulted him to instant fame in all of Israel. And as we've seen in our own day and age, uh, with so many children and so many younger people who have been given sudden, immense fame uh, and applause, maybe in Hollywood or, uh, you know, singing or whatever, David's success would actually end up creating a lot of difficulties and afflictions for him. The fact is that success often, uh, true success, true godly success, often creates more hardships and trials for people than they would have had without success. It's a travesty, it's a paradox, but it's true. That success often creates more hardships and trials than a person would have without that success. And with David, his life went from real obscurity You know, being just a a shepherd off in a pasture somewhere, away from the people, away from where anybody would would ever take notice of him. His life goes from being obscure to being prime time center stage, virtually overnight. Actually, within about an hour's time. Uh, We know that King Saul had promised an incredibly rich reward to anyone who would go out onto the battlefield and defeat uh, Goliath. We saw that it was promised back in verse 25 of chapter 17. It said, And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. That is, free of taxes. Now, what David didn't expect to gain was something far, far greater than the rewards that King Saul had offered and promised, and that is a friendship with the king's son, Jonathan this friendship that he establishes with Jonathan will be one of the greatest blessings of his life. And he has no idea that this is in store. But before we learn about the friendship that developed between David and Jonathan, uh, we're taken to a conversation that Saul had with the commander of his uh, army, that is Abner, uh, which leads us to seeing King Saul's reaction to the work that God did through David. So we're to see a contrast between Uh, Saul's response and the response of Jonathan. So we start by taking a look at King Saul's response to God's work through David. Let's look at verses 55 to 58 of chapter 17. It says, Now when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, By your life, O king, I do not know the king said, you inquire whose son the youth is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So this actually takes us back in time to before David defeated Goliath to a conversation that took place between Saul and Abner uh, while David was leaving Saul's presence before he goes out onto the battlefield to face Goliath. And we see that Saul had inquired, had asked uh, of Abner, whose son is this young man? To which Abner responded, I don't know. And so Saul gives Abner the responsibility to find out whose son is this young man now there's a whole group of liberal scholars who have tried to argue that this conversation is proof that the Bible has contradictions or that there are two different texts that were merged together to form one here they'll point out that King Saul had already been acquainted uh, with David uh, David after all was uh, brought in to play his harp for Saul to give him uh, to give him peace of mind uh, but Saul doesn't even seem to recognize David in this passage, or does he? We're not sure. It is at least ambiguous a little bit, Uh, but it's true that back in chapter 16, in verse 18, one of King Saul's younger counselors had said of David and his ability to to play music uh, that would soothe King Saul's mind, he said, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. So this guy knows where he's from. I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who's a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one, <clears throat> one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. The fact that neither Saul nor Abner uh, knew that David was the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite doesn't present any kind of contradiction. There's no indication that they were part of that conversation back in chapter 16, first of all even if they were, maybe they would have forgotten. Uh, But that was a conversation that seems to have taken place between Saul's counselors in private as they got together to try to figure out what they could do to help their king. Uh, But there was no indication that Abner was part of that conversation. Uh, Further, Saul didn't ask Abner, uh, who is that? He didn't say, who is this kid, who is that boy, as some liberal scholars have kind of interpreted him to have been asking there. No, the simple fact is that part of the reward for defeating Goliath of Gath was that his father's house was to be free, that is free of taxation. And it seems that Saul was uh, probably just inquiring for that purpose. Uh, not because he didn't know who David was, but because he wasn't exactly sure who David's father was. And so he's going to bless uh, the father of David. He needs to know who that is. That's what seems to be taking place here. There, there's not a contradiction. There's no indication of, you know, hundreds of years later, a couple different texts being merged together. That's ridiculous. But Abner apparently had no idea whose uh, who, who's, um, who David's father was. But since David had emerged from the battle victorious, uh, it gives him an opportunity to find out. And so he, he brought David to go before King Saul, once again, still so fresh from battle that David was still carrying Goliath's head in his hand. And this is where it gets weird. Because the natural thing to do when somebody has freed you from captivity or from enslavement, is to express some type of gratitude toward that person, some type of thanks toward that person, in some way, shape, or form, at least congratulate them something. But you should note here that King Saul does nothing of the sort. Instead, what we see is that he's just rather cold with David. Uh, He's very uh, impersonal and indifferent, even maybe apathetic toward him. And he asks him, Whose son are you, young man? That's the first thing you've got to say to David after he did this. There's no praise the Lord. There's no, hallelujah, look what you did. Look what the Lord did through you. There's no even, hey, you know, I doubted you, kid, but you proved me wrong. You know, something, something to express thanks or congratulations, but there's nothing like that. There's not even a thank you for freeing Israel from enslavement to the Philistines, which was exactly what was at stake, if you remember. So Saul somehow doesn't see this as an occasion to rejoice in the Lord's victory, which reveals so much about King Saul's heart, as if we didn't already see the results of his sinful heart so many times up until this point. But this reveals again, once again, how far from God King Saul's heart is. How hard, how cold his heart is. I think it's safe to say that King Saul is perceiving David to actually be some kind of threat to his kingship, to his throne. Maybe he's already starting to feel a little bit suspicious about David, perhaps suspicious that David may plot to overthrow him whatever the case, if you were to fast forward to chapter 18, verse 9, uh, we'll be told there that Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Well, that's not very far away. So I suspect that that perception of David as as being a threat, somebody to be suspicious of, uh, that that is already starting to form at this point. Because the fact is that God's people always know, almost as an instinct, of sorts. God's people always know that God's work, number one, it's always good. And number two, that we both can and we should rejoice whenever God works in our midst. Whether it's something that we like or whether it's something that we dislike. If we dislike it, the problem's with us, right? We need to repent. But we can always rejoice when God's work is being done in our midst. And we know this instinctively. Now, contrast this reaction, where there's no celebration, no congratulations, no, no gratitude, no thankfulness, contrast that with the reaction to the victory that God will give Israel on another occasion under David's kingship in 2 Samuel chapter six, in verse five there we read, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood, and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. So there's this national celebration that's going on there under David's kingship when he's king. But here in the end of chapter 17, there's no celebration at all. There's not even a word said about it. No national celebration, no rejoicing over God's good work being done in their midst. None of that under King Saul. And the reason seems to have been that he felt threatened by David. He viewed David not as a servant of the Lord, but as somebody who was really just competition, ultimately. Again, that is a worldly way of thinking. And what we've seen from Saul over and over and over, every single time, is that's the only type of thinking he knows how to produce. That is the way that the world thinks. That is the way that the world operates. And the world's ways of thinking, you know, it, let's say for example, I have the most successful sandwich restaurant in town. And some other sandwich restaurant moves into town. You know, I, I, I view them as competition and I do what I have to do to maintain my restaurant's position as the best uh, sandwich restaurant in town. In fact, I, I'd say that this kind of thinking is, is common. In, in every secular field just about. I, in fact, I'd say that that kind of thinking could be found in every secular job that I had prior to ministry. You've used somebody else as the competition. So if I've got the best sandwich restaurant in town, I've got to get better prices than that guy. I've got to get better food than that guy. I've got to do something to make him go out of business because I want the business. I want to maintain my business's position. But this is not the way that Christians are to view or treat other Christians. Or how one church is to perceive or treat another church. See, it is possible for Christians to perceive one another with almost a sense of contempt. Contempt that's driven by things like jealousy, or envy, or pride. Uh, We know that in the early church, uh, the church in Corinth, they started to experience all kinds of division. We read about it in 1 Corinthians uh, because of this kind of thinking. At one point, it's contempt toward one another because of who baptized who. You know, oh, Apollos baptized you. Oh, Peter baptized you. I was baptized by... Well, they're making a big deal out of these things because they're comparing one another. And so they're viewing each other with contempt. Uh, then it's jealousy and it's envy over who has the bigger and better spiritual gift. It's no wonder Paul, throughout that letter, uh, seems to have been uh, at least somewhat frustrated by the immaturity of the church in Corinth. Why? Because their thinking was so worldly. They weren't rejoicing at what God was doing in the lives of their brothers and sisters. They were comparing themselves with one another instead, which was leading to division because it was causing them to feel contempt toward one another. We see the same phenomenon actually so often in the modern church, even though we shouldn't. We We should have learned vicariously through the example of the Corinthians, but many haven't. Uh, we see churches often trying to outdo one another. Uh, sometimes I get flyers in the mail inviting uh, you know, the resident at you know, my address to come and visit their church. And I, I always find it humorous when I get a flyer uh, that says something like, is the music in your church boring? We're not like those old churches. And I find that humorous only because they're sending it to another pastor. I, I don't find, however, the competitive demeaning and degrading self-exalting attitude to be humorous at all however it's, it's not funny at all it's it's sad it's uh, it's sinful it's essentially the same attitude that king saul had it's essentially the same mindset that the world has that you need to degrade the competition to exalt yourself how in the world did we get to the place where churches are doing that it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. But King Saul has been constantly characterized by his selfishness, by his vain pursuit of his own glory. And so we're not surprised when he does it, we are surprised when a church does it. But that's the way King Saul was. Let let it be known, let it be seen, that King Saul's pride is not only preventing him from rejoicing over God's good work, but it's also preventing Saul from loving God and from loving his neighbor rightly. That neighbor being, of course, David. Jonathan, by contrast, on the other hand, shows us that when we've been truly set free from worldly thinking and selfish ambition and selfish concerns, we are free to truly love our brothers and sisters in Christ and to rejoice over the good work that God is accomplishing in them and through them. Let's continue and look at Jonathan's response in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1-5. to It says, Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people, And also in the sight of Saul's servants. You'll note that it doesn't say that it was pleasing in the eyes of Saul. It was pleasing in the eyes of his servants, it was pleasing in the eyes of everyone, but Saul is left out of that statement. Now, this passage is placed here right next to Saul's response. Very, very intentionally, as a means of teaching us through the use of how ugly and how sinful King's, uh, King Saul's attitude toward David truly was. Uh, we're supposed to notice that these verses, uh, verses 1 to 5 here, are sandwiched right between two passages in which the ugliness of King Saul's jealousy is made entirely evident. Uh, Jonathan, by contrast, shows us the beauty, the purity, the godliness of selflessness as com- uh, as contrasted with king saul's selfishness now one of the rewards that was due to david for his courageous victory on the battlefield against goliath was receiving king saul's oldest uh, daughter's hand in marriage uh, the fulfillment of this reward was, well, to put it as charitably as we can toward King Saul, it was extremely delayed, if not entirely neglected. Uh, he, his oldest daughter actually ends up uh, marrying somebody else, um, but he does get uh, another daughter, uh, for better or for worse. But David gained something uh, at least, at least as valuable as the hand of King Saul's daughter in marriage. He also gained the heart Uh, the friendship and the brotherhood of King Saul's son, Jonathan. Uh, The friendship that ensued, the friendship that quickly developed between Jonathan and David would have a profound impact on the rest of David's life, and it would prove to be an immense blessing that lasted him for the rest of his life. Now, in contrast, once again, to King Saul, whose actions and whose attitude toward David were entirely selfish Uh, prideful, vain, uh, we can't help but appreciate the selflessness of Jonathan in this passage, whose response was shaped by the fact that Jonathan was a man who loved and who served the Lord himself. And that was Jonathan's greatest pursuit, greatest desire in life. Uh, We were given a a glimpse, just a glimpse of his great faith back in chapter 14 when the Philistines had the armies of Israel both cornered and disarmed. And it was Jonathan who had said to his armor bearer in chapter 14, verse 6, come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. And God did use Jonathan In a mighty way on that day, driving the Philistines uh, back out of the land. The only reason that the Philistines weren't completely wiped out and eliminated that day was because of King Saul's foolishness, uh, his selfishness, his vanity, his sin. Uh, It interfered. But as great as his faith in God was, Jonathan himself still hadn't been bold enough himself to step out onto the battlefield against Goliath. But he was undoubtedly there. He was undoubtedly on the battlefield uh, for those 40 days. Uh, he was one of the men who had been you know, held captive by fear of this giant Uh, he'd heard the taunts he'd heard the mockery of god by goliath but he had also undoubtedly heard david's words and he'd undoubtedly been inspired by david's words from back in chapter 17 verses 45 to 47 where he said to goliath you come to me with a sword a spear and a javelin but i come to you in the name of the lord of hosts the god of the armies of israel whom you have taunted This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands." One of the greatest speeches in all of military history uh, right there in Scripture. I mean, who wouldn't be inspired by those words? Somebody as selfish as Saul, that's who. But Jonathan, Jonathan was in awe. And who wouldn't be? Who, who, Who in their right mind at least wouldn't be in awe of such great faith being displayed before them? And the answer again is only somebody who is captivated by something that is actually far, far worse than fear of a giant. Only someone who is captivated by selfishness and by worldly thinking. But Jonathan was not captivated by selfishness or by worldly thinking. Uh, We're told that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Now, this is actually fascinating because if there's anybody in the world who should hate David, who should view David as competition, it's Jonathan. Uh, so, so it's a, brush, uh, a breath of fresh air because it's so unlike Saul's worldly mindset. But it's also fascinating because in the, in the worldly mindset, Jonathan and David, you know, they, they could, would, and, and, and should have been the fiercest of rivals, maybe even enemies. After all, as far as anyone outside of Samuel and David's family knows, Jonathan is the one who is next in line for the crown. He's the heir apparent to the throne of Israel, and yet we know, and David knows, and Samuel and David's family know that David is the one who has been chosen and anointed by the Lord to be the next king of Israel. Uh, You'll recall how Saul had at one point, after failing to eliminate the Philistines back in chapter 14, he had actually almost put his son Jonathan to death. Uh, Jonathan had been saved by the armies of Israel who stood up against their king to defend Jonathan's life. Uh, They apparently loved and greatly appreciated and respected Jonathan. And what we're going to see now is that just like they had loved Jonathan, man, they are really going to love Jonathan. David. And the beautiful thing about that is that Jonathan doesn't care that they love David. He doesn't care that they admire David, because in fact, he's one of them. He's with them 100%. He loves and admires David too. And so while Jonathan would have every reason in the world, with a worldly mindset, to feel threatened by David's actions or threatened by David's faith, or to feel overlooked and forgotten because of David's victory, or to feel resentment for the way that God had used David instead of using Jonathan. Instead, he loved David as he loved his own soul. Do you see the selflessness there? That's what selflessness looks like. Now, at this point, I do think it's probably worth a word or two, which uh, is more than it's worth talking about, but I, I feel like it's worth pointing out and saying something in regard to the wicked idea that has gained so much, so much popularity uh, in recent years that Jonathan's love for David was an erotic homosexual love. Uh, the people, let me just say this, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna uh, pull any punches here. The people who make that claim are children of the devil. Those are children of the devil who see and desire for there to be sexual perversity everywhere you look. And it's because they love and desire sexual perversity that they see sexual perversity in this text. It is absurd. Indeed, it's beyond absurd. It's to the point of just being downright evil to suggest that there is some kind of homoerotic love between David and Jonathan. Uh, the fact is that throughout the course of chapter 18 we're told that everybody except Saul of course that everybody loves David uh, verse 16 says but all Israel and Judah loved David and he went out and came in before them verse 20 says now Michal uh, Saul's daughter loved David everybody loved David And the reason was because there was such grace that was evident in David's life. But the fact is that six times in this chapter, we're told about how all of Israel, except Saul, loved David. What a sad and wicked thing, what an even pathetic thing it is to see theologians reading a homoerotic love into this text and trying to justify homoerotic love with this text. All I can say is that these sexually deviant views come from people who see everything through a sexually depraved and deviant, sexually deviant lens. And that every Christian should flee at once, not only from these evil ideas, these evil notions, but that they should also flee from the evil people who hold and promote such evil ideas. These are the types of people we are instructed to mark and avoid. And just say, may the Lord be merciful to them. But we shouldn't focus our attention for too long on what absolutely didn't happen uh, between Jonathan and David. Rather, we should return our focus to what actually did happen between Jonathan and David. Uh, first, the first thing we're told is that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Now, what does that mean? Let's we'll start with this. You know, Jonathan was significantly older than David was. Uh, they they came from completely different backgrounds, completely uh, different experiences. None of the things that Jonathan and David had experienced in life up to this point were similar at all. But what this is, this is an expression of familial bond. It's an expression of familial bond. The, the Hebrew word that gets translated "knit" here it can also be translated "bind" to bind or to be bound together. Uh, in Genesis chapter 44, uh, we read that the soul of Jacob was bound to the soul of his son Benjamin. Uh, same Hebrew word uh, is used there as is used here, which indicates that this is a familial bond, not a not an erotic bond at all. But the point that the author wants us to grasp here when he says that his soul was knit to David's soul is that these men are not enemies and they're not rivals they are brothers who are bound together by something stronger and better than even blood and that is by a common faith in the Lord see in the world's thinking the highest allegiance that the son of the king should have had would have been to the royal family and to the preservation of the the throne in their family. But Jonathan's highest allegiance, uh, his greatest loyalty, was to the Lord. And so his allegiance, above and beyond his allegiance to the royal family, was to the family of God. The second thing that we're told is that Jonathan loved David as he loved his own soul In other words, it was neither a selfish nor self-serving love. It is a pure, unadulterated, selfless, godly love that Jonathan had for David. The way that Jonathan treats David, the way that he loves David is quintessentially the kind of love that God has always commanded his people to have for their neighbor. In Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18, God commanded the people saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Of course, that would be quoted by Jesus when he was asked what the greatest commandment is. And he responded by saying that the, first, uh, gr- the greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. And we see that in Jonathan's love for David. Uh, when Paul wrote to the Philippians, he had this kind of love in mind when he instructed them, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. What kind of love is that? We call it agape love in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's the kind of love that Jonathan has for David, But we should understand that pride and envy and jealousy and conceit, all of these things would cause us to feel contempt toward others, especially those who, in the world's way of thinking, we would view as competition. In other words, especially those who are maybe more gifted than we are. But Jonathan is not captivated. He's not enslaved to any of these things. And so, unlike his father, he was free to love God, and to love his neighbor the way that God had commanded. So first, we see that Jonathan's soul was knit to David. Second, we see that Jonathan loved David uh, the way that he loved his own soul. Third, we see in verse 3 that Jonathan makes a covenant with David. Now, what's a covenant? A covenant is a binding agreement. And we should see here that it appears to have been initiated by Jonathan. Jonathan took the initiative in making this covenant with David because Jonathan was the one who was in the position of authority, right? So Jonathan was the one with the prince's crown. So what exactly does this covenant involve? What becomes evident in the following verse, if you look at verse 4, is that it involved a voluntary surrender of Jonathan's personal rights and privileges for David's blessing, and a personal endorsement of David before the armies of Israel. In other words, to to use the words of, of the Puritan commentator John Gill, it was, quote, a covenant of friendship. They entered into a solemn agreement to keep up and maintain a cordial respect to each other and to support each other's interest both in life and after death, end quote. In other words, it was a covenant of godly brotherhood, a covenant of supreme loyalty and allegiance. And it's the establishment of this covenant that leads us to one of the greatest demonstrations of selfless, God-glorifying love from one person to another in all of the Old Testament scriptures. Jonathan gives David his own robe and his own armor. There's deep, deep significance to both of those things. Commentator John Woodhouse summarizes the significance of that. He writes that, quote, Jonathan was symbolically transferring his own royal rights and prerogatives, chief of which was his legitimate claim to the throne of Israel, to David. This was nothing less than an act of abdication. And he goes on to say David would take precedence and Jonathan would rejoice, end quote. That's the significance of that. Uh, Ralph Dale Davis, or Dale Ralph Davis, agrees, noting in his commentary that, quote, The clothes signify the person and his position. Hence, Jonathan renounces his position as crown prince and transfers, so far as his own will goes, the right of succession to David. End quote. And so there's never ever going to come a point where there's any reason in the world for these guys to come into conflict with each other. There's never going to come a point where some people are saying, well, wait a minute, Jonathan's the one who's supposed to be next on the throne, but God's appointed David, so who are we supposed to pick? The choice has already been made as soon as they meet. Jonathan voluntarily surrenders every right and every privilege he has to David. Now, this is something, again, that is so contrary to worldly thinking, and yet it's so normal in the world that we might actually start to think that it's normal. Don't go there. Don't do that. That's not normal. That's not the way we were designed. That's sinful. No up-and-coming politician, for example, would ever dare do something like this in our day and age. And it was no different then. You know, in the ancient Near East, uh, you didn't bless your competition if you were an heir apparent to the throne. You, you assassinated him. You know, you didn't transfer the rights to the crown and to the throne to someone else who proved himself worthy. No, you did what you could to either get him out of the way or prove yourself to be superior. That's the way it works in the world. But what seems completely obvious from this passage is not only that there were no romantic feelings uh, between David and Jonathan, but also that Jonathan was able to see that God had used uh, David in a mighty way. That it was God behind David's victory. And rather than feeling embarrassed, rather than feeling ashamed, rather than maybe feeling humiliated because he hadn't been the one to go out there, uh, he rejoiced in God's work and he admired David's faith. And what this does is it highlights the the greatness and the strength and the beauty of Jonathan's faith. One commentator says, quote, This deed on his part was an act of faith. Only faith makes us willing to be the lesser. Faith causes us to surrender the rights we pretend to have, end quote. Now what about you? Are you willing to lay down your rights or the rights that you think that you have? Are you willing to be the lesser if God is glorified? Are you more concerned with your own rights, your own privileges, your own accomplishments, your your reputation, your accolades, all the way down the line? Are you more concerned with those things than you are with God's glory? By way of application, what does this story teach us about how we should relate to our fellow Christians or about how churches should relate to one another. Doesn't it show us, doesn't this story show us that there is a bond of faith that creates a brotherhood where rivalries or hostile relations would have otherwise been created, at least would have been created with a worldly mindset, where sin would make Bitter rivals or even enemies who are bitterly competing for the upper hand. Faith makes brothers who labor side by side for the gospel, each rejoicing in the blessings and the successes of the other and the work that God is accomplishing in them and, uh, and, and in the other and through the other as well. But ultimately, what Jonathan models for us here is what a Christian is bound by covenant faith and love uh, to do toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing in Jesus involves receiving many blessings and many benefits from God through our Lord Christ Jesus, including every heavenly blessing according to Ephesians chapter 1, but it also involves laying down every perceived right or privilege that we might think, that we might imagine that we have, surrendering ourselves to live under the sovereign rule and reign of Christ our King. If Jonathan was blessed by laying down his power, if Jonathan was blessed by laying down his privileges for the sake of covenant friendship with David, and I certainly believe that he was incredibly blessed by doing this, how much more blessed will you be to lay down your rights, to lay down your privileges for the sake of the Lord Jesus, who is the greatest and the most faithful of friends. And how much more worthy is Jesus than any other of surrendering your rights and privileges? Well, it's important for us to surround ourselves and develop friendships with fellow believers, fellow Christians. It is infinitely more important that we daily knit our hearts to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us not in our victory, not in our strength, but who loved us in our sin, our failures, in our weaknesses. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 verses 6 to 8. He says that while we were still helpless, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Just as Jonathan laid down his rights and privileges for David's blessing and benefit the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his rights in order to fulfill the covenant of redemption that he had established with God the Father in eternity past, all for the glory of God the Father and for the benefit and blessing of all who would trust in Christ alone for their salvation. See, when a person believes in Jesus, when they believe savingly in Jesus, they enter into an unbreakable covenant with Jesus just as Jonathan was faithful to David for the rest of his life the Lord Jesus has promised that he will never leave us that he will never forsake us his covenant of grace will cover us his covenant of grace will comfort us his covenant of grace will bless us not only now not only on mountains and in valleys in this life but for all of eternity and beyond in the words of oswald chambers he said this he said quote the dearest friend on earth is but a mere shadow compared with jesus christ End quote and friends i pray that you would know that that you would cling to that and not only know it up here but know it in your experiences it will prove true Because while what Jonathan did was indeed great and beautiful and selfless and admirable and all these things, what Jesus did was even greater. Jonathan gave David his robes and his armor, but Jesus not only clothed us with his spotless robes of righteousness, but he did what no other friend could ever do by taking our filthy rags of sinfulness upon himself that he may bear God's penalty against our sin in our place he both lived for us and he died for us something that no other friend could do the way that he did and that's why the apostle John would go on to write in first John chapter 4 verses 10 and 11 he said in this is love Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. May our lives testify to the fact, therefore that when we have been truly set free from worldly thinking, when we have truly been set free from selfish ambition and selfish Christ, and to rejoice in the good work that God is accomplishing in them and through them, because it's not about us. It's all about God's glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the foreshadowing of the selfless love of Christ that's foreshadowed in Jonathan's selfless love for Jonathan, uh, for David. Uh, Lord, we thank You for the way that Your Word instructs us and admonishes us. Perhaps it rebukes us. Perhaps it comforts us but we thank You for Your Word in the way that it causes us to grow in Christ's likeness. We pray, Lord, that we would know what it's like to have the selflessness that Jonathan had toward David. Help us, O Lord, to surrender and forsake every perceived right or privilege that we think we're entitled to. Help us to see, O Lord, that with You, The only thing we deserve is your wrath, and yet in your great mercy, because of your great love, you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to live and to die for us, to live the life that we failed to live and to die the death that we deserve to die in order that we may have the blessings and privileges that he earned with his perfect life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We thank you for the promise that you are causing all things to grow us in Christ's likeness. We thank you for the promise that you have given us and blessed us with every heavenly blessing. We pray, O Lord, that you would teach us to live our lives first and foremost, above all, for your glory, that Christ may be exalted. In his name we pray. Amen.